This is our line-by-line, -line, verse by verse study through the book of Galatians. It's really an in-depth study, even though today we are taking a larger section than what we have taken in the past. I couldn't really find a place to break it into, so we're just going to cover um, all, uh, what is it, 12 of these verses today, which is pretty long compared to what we've been doing. Um, we are currently in chapter 4 with a message entitled, Why Choose Legalism Again? Or why choose slavery again? They were under slavery when they were under the elements of the world. And then they came back into legalism and they chose slavery over freedom that is in Christ. By the way, that's one of the, uh, the last song that we sang is perfectly fitting for our study today because we really are free in Christ and we don't want to put ourselves under any kind of bondage to any system again. I've got a subtitle, Paul Pleads, with the Galatians to make better choices. He pleads with the Galatians to make better choices. And this is a very heartfelt text as Paul pours out to these people whom he truly loves and is heartbroken that they have received, accepted false doctrine, which is just really a heartbreaking thing. You minister somewhere and then you leave and false teachers come in and you receive the things that the false teachers are saying. And so Paul is dealing with that now. In our, last in our last section, Paul played out the incredible benefits of being a child of God. Remember in the first seven verses of this chapter, he calls us children of God and we have an inheritance. And what a great thing it is that you and I have been adopted into the family of God. We talked about adoption, how complete it was in the Greek and the Roman system. And oftentimes they would, they would adopt adults, by the way which is really interesting. And some of the, the actual Caesars that came in the empire were actually adopted, not just Augustus, whom I talked about last week, but others as well, adopted as adults. And God adopts a lot of us in as adults. Some of us as children, but a lot of us in as adults as well. And um, so after talking about the sonship, he's doing that for, on, on purpose. We are children of God adopted into his family and heirs, and we have it all. So why would you exchange sonship to be put under bondage again? That's where Paul's going in this next section. The Galatians had turned away from the truth, and Paul is heartbroken over that. Now, Paul makes a statement in verses 8 through 11, and then he has four I'm calling them, you know, four pleas. He pleads four different things for them. One in verse 12, one in verses 13 through 16, one in verses 17 and 18, and then one in verses 19 through 20. So first of all, he urges them to become like him. I urge you, brethren, to become like me. The second one is, remember how you cared for me. You guys remember I was in need and you loved me and you cared for me. He also says, beware of the tactics of the legalists. There are certain tactics that false teachers have. He says, beware of them. And then his final plea is, please listen to me. Please listen to what I am saying to you because he's afraid that they're not going to do it again. So let's start with his statement. His statement includes a question, but let's start with his statement. We pick that up in verse eight. He says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those by which nature are not gods. When you didn't know God, you serve those by nature which are not gods. 
Now he's talking about paganism. He's talking about idolatry. Idolatry in Israel wasn't practiced in the first century. There's a lot in the history of, of Israel that it, you did have idolatry, but not in Israel. But all around the Greek and Roman world, there was idolatry that was practiced. And he's saying that these gods are not, are not gods, that the powers behind them are something else. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17 says this, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations, uh, with abominations, not abominations, but abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to gods. To gods, they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that their fathers did not fear. Now that passage tells us that when you are worshiping a false god, they are not gods. It is demons that are behind the power of those false gods. So they might have thought it was innocent that they worshiped Jupiter but there's actually a demonic force behind those false gods. Leviticus 17, 7 tells us a similar thing. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons who they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So again, when they sacrifice their children to these false gods, these again would be the, the uh, pagan gods of the the uh, the uh, uh, the Beor, um, Baals, the Baals. I can't remember Baals. Uh, the Baals in the Old Testament, Baal Zebub, Baal Beor, uh, Baal Marduk, Baal Molech. Uh, these, and it was Baal Molech that they sacrificed their children to. And so Baal Molech wasn't a god or a spirit, as some people try to say, but was actually a demon. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we have freedom from the demonic realm. This is really important for us to understand because there are people who try to get us back under needing to be delivered from demonic spirits. The Bible says don't give place to the enemy. So it's possible that you and I could give place to the enemy, but we are, are set free. The, the enemy has no power over us. So 1 Corinthians says, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other gods but one. So these are not gods. And when you're sacrificing food to them, even though there's something demonic that might be behind that particular God, uh, that you don't have a problem eating the meat. The only thing that eventually he, that the New Testament kind of lands on is it's a conscious thing. If, if you know that, that they sacrificed most of the meat sold in their market to idols, and if you knew that the meat had been sacrificed to idols and you had a, a conscious issue with that, then don't do it. But Paul basically says in one place, just stop asking. You go over to someone's house and eat. Don't say, is this been sacrificed to idols or not? Just don't ask. For conscience sake, just don't ask. So when he tells them in verse eight, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those by which nature are not gods. Then in verse nine, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. And so this can be a little confusing. What does that mean? Known God or known by God. And there are those that try to say that it's God's knowing you that is the only important thing, not you knowing God. But that's not what the passage is saying. It's not saying that God didn't know you existed, that you have now become known to God. 
that God didn't know you existed before and now you've become known to God and so God's putting all this attention in you. That's not what it's saying. If someone asks me if I know Troy Stokoe and I say, yeah, I know him. He's a good friend of mine. I know him. Now I might know of his existence if he wasn't a good friend, if he wasn't the associate pastor here. I might know him, know of him, but they're not asking me if I know of him. They're asking me if I know him. Same idea. Now that you know God, you actually have a relationship with him, or better yet, God knows you. God has a relationship with you. It goes both ways. You know God and God knows you. And now that you are known by God or rather been known by him, 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So see the connection in the relationship? You love him and therefore he is known by, we're known by God. 1 John 4, 7 gives us some more insight. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We love so him so God knows us. We love and so we know God. So it's a relationship that goes both ways. So they had gone from sacrificing to idols that were not God's to be known by God and knowing God into a relationship with God. They had moved from that place to this place. And then these legalists show up and bring a false doctrine. There's certain works that you've got to do. You've got to keep the law. There's certain parts of the law that you have to keep. So he goes on to say then, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? Notice those two words, weak and beggarly. The idea is the law is weak. Now, Paul will go out of the way to say he's not saying that the law is wrong or it's bad. He's just saying it's weak and you replace a genuine relationship with God, knowing God and being known by God by some kind of works. And that is so beggarly compared to a relationship with God. Even if it's something today, if someone says, well, you are genuinely saved when you speak in tongues. That's so, hey, tongue, I believe in tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues. I, think it, I don't think it's gone away. I'm not a cessationist, which is one who believes that the gifts, the sign gifts have passed away. But it's, it's weak and beggarly compared to a relationship of knowing God and God knowing you. Being baptized is great. Baptized in water is fantastic. But if you think that's what saves you, it's weak and beggarly to think that getting baptized is anywhere near like knowing God and being known by God. See that he's pointing out that you're going back under legalism and it's weak and it's beggarly compared to what you had. You gave up sonship for something that is weak and beggarly, the weak and beggarly elements. So he talks about what these elements are. To which you desire to be in bondage, to which you desire to be in slavery. You desire to be under these things that you were set free from to observe days, months, seasons, and years. That's Judaism. Judaism had full moon festivals, Sabbath, Sabbath year celebration. They celebrated in different times of the month. So he's talking about those celebrations that took place. In Colossians, it says, don't let anybody put you under these kind of things. And it talks about full moons and festivals, again, very Jewish things. And then it says, which is a shadow of Christ. 
These things were there in Israel because they spoke of Jesus and studying them for us now, the, the benefit for us is that we learn more about Jesus. I love studying the festivals because it helps us to know Christ. I love studying Leviticus. I would have never have thought that I would say that. The first couple of times in my, my career, going through the book of Leviticus, when I was done with the book, I would kind of be like, good riddance, Leviticus. I don't want you anymore. You know, offer this sacrifice. And it just gives, it goes through this breakdown of every sacrifice, the fat and the lobes and divide it and all of these things. But when you go back and you study what the sacrifices were, the burnt offering, the consecration offering, the peace offering, all of a sudden they all speak of the offering that Christ gave and different elements of it. It's very powerful. But instead of going to Christ, you're going to the shadow of Christ. It'd be like if we hadn't seen each other in a long time and you saw me and you ran up and started saying, it's so good to see you, but you were talking to my shadow instead of me. It'd be like, I'm right here. My shadow is just a shadow. You can learn something about me from my shadow. You might even be able to recognize me depending on how the shadow falls, that that's me. But you can't really learn about me from the shadow. And if you are, if you are a legalist, Believing that these things are still for today, you are, you are bringing, you are going to the shadow instead of going to Christ. So they were observing days, months, seasons, and years. They weren't just trying to push circumcision on them. They were trying to push the festivals on them. They were trying to push the dietary laws on them, circumcision, as well as the different celebrations that the Jews did throughout the years, including the Sabbath day which is right there. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. And then he says, I am afraid for you. Now we get into the, the mode that he's in for his pleas. He begins to plea with them. And he says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. He's worried that he went and had all of that labor. And, and by the way, this is, is birth labor. The word labor here is for birth. He says, I labored for you. I like, it's like childbirth. I went through childbirth for you. And I feel like that labor was in vain. In essence, he's saying here that the child would be born, would be stillborn, that he labored for them and there was no fruit that came from it. And, and Paul really poured into the Galatians. When you go back and you read all of the things that happened to him in the area of Lystra and Derby, the worst of which was being stoned and drug out of the city and left for dead. That was in the region of the Galatians that that happened. And so he says, I'm afraid that I labored for you in vain. And so because of this fear that he went through all of this, you know, again, the comparison is child labor for them in vain. He now gives them these four pleas. The first one is in verse 12. Brethren, I urge you, become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Now, he's going to get into the injured part here in a moment. But what does he mean? Become like me because I became like you. Because the very thing that they're doing in becoming Jewish, the very thing that they're doing in keeping the laws, the very thing that they're doing in keeping the festivals, the very thing that they're doing in keeping the dietary laws and being circumcised is the very thing Paul left behind. Paul 
was as Jewish as Jewish can be. In the book of Corinthians, he basically says to them, you, you make me boast. Let me tell you about who I was. You, you're going to make me boast. And here's who I was. In Philippians 3, 3 through 7, listen to what Paul says about who he was before he came to Christ. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. He's saying there's no more circumcision today because when we worship God in the spirit, we are the real circumcision. He says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Again, there was this legalist cult that was going around all over the ancient world. And it was happening in Philippians as well and in Philippi as well. And so he's just making sure that he told them about it before it got there. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. I could have confidence in what I've done under Judaism. He says, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, born into a Jewish family, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was a Hebrew who was born of Hebrew parents. Timothy, or Titus, I think it's Timothy, might be Titus, one of those guys, I think it's Timothy. Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. He wouldn't be born a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is saying, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He was like Nicodemus, like his teacher Gamaliel was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was someone who was set apart and they were in all kinds of aspects of the religious world in their day. They were rabbis in synagogues. They took care of people spiritually. They, some of them were scribes. Some of the Pharisees were scribes. And he says, a Pharisee concerning zeal. You want to talk about zeal for God? Because people have zeal for the law and people still have zeal for the law today. But concerning zeal, persecuting the church concerning righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. Paul says, I went out of my way to keep the law. I don't know how many people could say what Paul is saying here. Now, he doesn't mean I never broke a law. What he means is, is that when he did, he gave the proper sacrifices and he did the proper washings. He did everything he was supposed to do to make sure that he kept the entire law covering himself for all of the sins that he might have. He's not saying he is blameless. He's saying in the keeping of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Those things that I once thought were gain, all of these Hebrew things, I now count a loss for Christ. So when he says, become like me, he's saying, turn away from all of these Jewish things that you think are going to save you. And it's not, Paul's Jewish. It's not anti-Semitism from Paul, right? He's Jewish. He's saying these Jewish religious things need to be pushed away. Push them away. I did. I became, become like me because I became like you. When I came to you guys, I was like you. I wasn't under all the law. And then you guys came under the law and became like I was. So become like me because I became like you. Give this law stuff up and start to live in that relationship with God again. You knew God. God knew you. There was nothing to add to it. 
Why is it that we think through our flesh we can add to something that God has already done? What are you going to do that's going to add to the work of Christ? What are you going to do that's going to make God go, oh, well, you were baptized. Well, then that that makes the work of the cross much more significant. Does it? Does speaking in tongues, thinking that salvation, does that make the work of the cross more significant? Does going to church on Saturday make the cross more significant? Does keeping the dietary laws, which some people push to do today, does that make the work of the cross any more significant? No wonder, Paul said, if you can be saved by a law, a work, then Christ died in vain. What are you going to add to what Christ did? Become like I am, for I became like you are. The second plea is in verses 13 through 16. Here he says, remember how you cared for me. He wants to remind them that not only did they have a love relationship with God and God had a love relationship with them, but he wants to remind them that they loved each other, that he truly loved them and he knew that they loved him. He's not reminding them, I loved you. He's reminding them how much they loved him. So he says in verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. Because of a physical infirmity. The word infirmity means sickness. Paul had a sickness. Paul had a disease. And we should talk about the false teachings of the faith movement, even though it's probably predictable that I'm going to go there. And I realize that. Nevertheless, and and this comes out of the Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And I am not anti-charismatic or Pentecostal. I I came out of Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches. I grew up in the Methodist church, went to an Assembly of God church, went to a a charismatic, radical charismatic church, went to a Foursquare church, which is Pentecostal. And I did a lot of my growing, a lot of my Bible study in the midst of these churches. But those churches also embraced this teaching that if you have enough faith, you will not be sick. Can you imagine if a church teaches that and there's someone there who gets sick? It actually happens. And they are embarrassed of them. They tell them you're sick because of your lack of faith. Specifically, there was a gentleman who began to attend our church a few years ago, decade or so ago, maybe a little longer than that, that was in a Pentecostal church that taught that if you were sick, it's because you have a lack of faith and you got Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, my father passed away from Lou Gehrig's disease, so it's, it's close to my heart when someone is suffering from this particular disease and to hear his story of how he was shunned because he wasn't healed, that it was a lack of faith on his part. Can you imagine anyone who needs to be ministered to any more than someone who finds out that they have a terminal disease, especially one that is as brutal as Luke Garrick's disease and then to push them away And to act like, if you really love God, you won't be sick. This is just not biblical at all. It's been around for a long time. I have a book in my library called The Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. And the section on tongues is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal section. It's unbelievable. 
It, it talks about practicing tongues in church, not all at one time, not if there, there's one or two at most. It talk, it's, it's phenomenally covers what the Bible says about it. But when it gets to divine healing, it's completely off base. Teaching this very thing. Paul was sick. And Paul is an apostle. Paul heals people. And he has an infirmity. Now they try to walk around this word and say that it doesn't really mean infirmity. We get our word infirmary from the word that infirmity, that infirmity is here. It is a sickness. And he says to them, because of a physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you at first. God used his sickness to keep him in Galatia. When Paul went to the region of Galatia, he was just passing through and he wanted to go east. He wanted to go over to Asia. He wanted to go to India. He wanted to go east. But instead of going east, the Holy Spirit stopped him. And we learn here that he stayed and preached to the Galatians. So there was a sickness and God used the sickness to cause them to preach there. This is such a strong sign that God uses all things to work together for the good. Even suffering, even sickness. God has his plan. God has his purpose. I'm not saying that God always causes illnesses. Sometimes they may just happen to us because we're human. And humans get illnesses. We get diseases. We get sick. We get injuries. It happens to us. But I am saying that God can use anything that has happened to you. And I don't, and I, this infirmity of Paul, we can go back and you can look at it. When he talks about the thorn in the flesh, is it the same thing? If the thorn in the flesh is the same thing as this physical infirmity to the Galatians, then it's a messenger from Satan to buffet him to keep him humble. The Bible says that God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Paul said it, a messenger from Satan that God used to humble me because of the greatness of the calling. God called him as an apostle to write most of the New Testament. And it's a great calling, but he used something to keep him humble as well. And then he says, we preached the gospel there to him at first because of that. So they received the gospel because of an infirmity Paul had. And then verse 14, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God because they had the same false teachings and thoughts in their day that if something bad happened to you, you deserved it. You were getting what you deserved if you got sick. Remember when the disciples saw the man who was born blind? And they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? I don't even know what their theology was. I've looked it up. I tried to figure it out. How could someone sin in the womb to be born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Were they saying that God knew he was going to do something in his life and so he caused him to be born blind? I don't know what their theology was, but they thought he deserved it. Who sinned? Someone sinned that this man would be born blind. Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, no, but for the glory of God, this man was born blind. What a statement. The, for the glory of God, a man is born blind. There's also an Old Testament passage talking about God creating that says it's God who has created the deaf. It's God who has created the blind. An interesting verse. 
He says, you didn't reject me. You didn't despise me because of this, because people did in their day. But you received me as an angel of God, as a messenger of God. God had sent me to you and you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. You guys loved me so much. You received me in spite of my infirmity that you received me as Christ himself. That's the relationship that they had with Paul. <clears throat> He's reminding them of the love that they had for him. <coughs> Excuse me, he goes on to say in verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? You received Christ, you came into sonship. What was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, this is one of the reasons that we think that Paul had an eye disease. That because they would have plucked out their eyes. He's talking about the infirmity. That's the context and given it to them. We have no evidence that this is a, a statement that was common in their day. Like he would give you his right arm. That's a statement that we use in passing and we don't mean it literally. Right. When we say that that guy, he's salt of the earth, he'd give you his right arm. Right there, we use two phrases that somebody in the future is going to go, what in the world? He's the salt of the earth. He'd give you his right arm if they don't understand our culture. But there's no evidence to say that that's what's being said here. To just go, OK, well, this is this is a, sta a statement like he would give you his right arm without any evidence is an ad hoc statement, is an ad hoc argument. An ad hoc argument is an argument that you make without any evidence. When you're, when you're talking to someone and you're talking about something and you go, well, what if? Well, what if it's this way? Well, what if it's that way? Those are arguments without any evidence. It doesn't necessarily mean the ad hoc argument is wrong. It just means there's no evidence. You're just kind of spitballing off the top of your head or you're just kind of trying to come up with something and you have no evidence. It's an uneducated guess. You aren't taking time to really dive in and see what the real arguments could be and what the real evidence would be. So it's hard to go there. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. There's probably more to it than that, that there was a disease. Now, also in the book, I think it's at the end of this book, he says to them in his, in his, the final part of the book, he says, do you see the large letters that I wrote to you with? This is how I sign all of my letters. Now, large there could mean large as in print, or it could mean long as in a long letter, but the book of Galatians is not a long letter. And so he has someone dictate all of his letters. This could also be a side effect of, or, or because of his eye problems that he has someone dictate all of his letters. He doesn't write any of them as far as we know himself. He has someone dictate them all. And he's a scholar. He certainly could write his own letters. And so at the end of it, he would sign the very last, or he would write the last part of the letter in letters that they would know. This is my sign. Because there were all kinds of people faking letters of Paul everywhere. Now, the point again here is you guys really loved me. In essence, he's saying, you guys would have given me your eyes. You accepted me despite my infirmity. What happened? What happened that you would now think I'm against you? That you would not have that love for me still? And so the third thing that he pleads, them, pleads with them is verses 16 through 18. When he, says, when he says, basically, beware of the tactics of the legalists. He says, I have therefore become your enemy. You loved me like this. And now I'm your enemy. Because I tell you the truth. 
I'm speaking the truth to you and, and, and I'm your enemy. They zealously court you. That's the tactics of the legalists. That's the tactic, tactics of false teachers. They zealously court you. Christians are, are often the target of conversions of cults. They aren't going out on the street and trying to convert someone else. They're trying to convert Christians. Certain theologies. They're not interested in converting people that don't know Christ. They're interested in converting Christians to their theology. Always beware of that. When someone is just so concerned about persuading you to start to think like they think in their theology. When, especially when most of these theologies are secondary issues. They're not primary issues. If there's a salvation problem, what we would call soteriology in theology, if there's a salvation problem, I have no problem with someone going, hey, we need to talk because this is salvation here. But if it's a secondary issue and they just want to get you on their side, they zealously court you. They're coming after you. Here's the crazy thing. Paul talks about their zeal in courting Christians. And this is exactly what the legalists do. They sneak into churches. Paul talked about them coming in unaware. They pretend they're something else when they are entirely something different. And they sneak in to zealously court you to win you over to themselves. Why? Well, he tells us, yes, they want to exclude you from the, the real Christianity that they may be that that you may be zealous for them. They want you on their side. That's what they're looking for. We want you to walk with Christ. We want you in a relationship with God. Oftentimes when we'll do an altar call after the service, we give people a chance to give their lives to Christ. I'll tell them by raising your hand and praying this prayer, you didn't join a church. You might not join us at all, but you came to something much more significant to Christ. You invited Christ into your life. You were baptized by him into the body of Christ, but that's, there's much more to the body of Christ in this church. And so when someone zealously courts you for themselves, that ought to send off some red flag warnings. Something, something's going on here. They're really interested in getting me for whatever it is they're doing. What you ought to be interested in is winning people to Christ. And if someone says, well, I've come to Christ at, at Calvary, but I think I want to go to Christ Community. I think I want to go to Pantano Church or I think I want to go to um, whatever Baptist church, Casas Adobe's, whatever. Great, fantastic. That's wonderful. Because Christ does a work in planting people where he wants to plant them. And if you are zealously courting them for yourself, it's a problem anyway. We are zealously courting them for Christ. We want them to come to Christ to find eternity, to be saved and to be in love with him. And when it becomes about the church, when it becomes about the individual, when the church is exalted, when the church is lifted up, when they're talking about how great they are, how many things they do, how far around the world they reach and how just all of these things about the church. It's like you go to church and there's a, just a bunch of singing of praises of the church. You start to wonder, are you zealously courting me for Christ? Are you zealously courting me for your church? Because you want to talk about how great your church is. And trust me, these things happen. 
They happen. Not only do they happen, there are books that are written that tell pastors how to do these things in their church so they can have church growth. But they end up zealously courting them instead of doing the work of the gospel. He says, but it is good to be zealous. They're zealously courting you, but it is good to be zealous. Uh, to be zealous is a good thing, always, and not only when I am present with you. He says, be, be zealous. Be zealous for Christ when I'm there with you, but also when I'm not there with you. But they zealously court you that they may win them away to themselves. And that's always the problem. And it's one of the ways that you can identify false gospels, false teachings, is because they're, they're courting you into something. Also, beware of business programs. <laughs> you want to be careful. <laughs> that try to get you involved in it for the sake of making money, but using Christianity as a, as a term. I don't have any problem with certain business models like Mary Kay or others that are along these lines. I don't have any problems with it. But when they start to creep in and use it as an advantage, using the church as an advantage to try to make money, that's not a good thing. It'd be better to go the other way and say, let's start, stay as far away from this as we can. And I'm not saying that if somebody comes to you and says, you're doing this, and I think I would like to do that. There's not a problem with that. But there's a problem when you in a Bible study say, I'm doing this. If any of you are interested in that, then let, you know, let us know. There, then that begins to cross that line. And then it can cross the line a whole bunch more than that. Be zealous, but be zealous for Christ. It's good to be zealous for Christ, not zealous for other things. Some of these, and I'm not saying Mary Kay is, but some of these, I probably shouldn't have used that by name. I don't have any problem with Mary Kay, all right? I don't. But some of these pyramid kind of businesses are just zealous to try to use it to make money and churches are one of the places they send people. So we're always very careful when we see it surfacing in the church to make sure that we don't allow that to develop because that's not what we're about. We're about being zealous for Christ and that's what he wants from them. Finally, he pleads with them to listen to him. Verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I not only labored to win you to Christ, but I'm laboring again. I'm going, this is again, the birth pain idea. That's the word. He's, I'm laboring for you again. It's, it's kind of, it's just interesting that he uses a female word here to talk about laboring, but he's bringing them into Christ and he's laboring to bring them into Christ. And he says, my little children for whom I labor in birth pain, birth again until Christ is formed in you. I want to see you complete and total in Christ in you. This isn't about making Paulinian followers. In fact, to the Corinthians, he says, you guys are carnal because you say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. That's carnal. He's not about getting followers for himself. He's not building the kingdom of Paul. He's building the kingdom of Christ. And I'm going to labor for you until Christ is formed in you. It's Christ I want to see formed in you. I would like to present you now and to change my tone. I would like to be present with you now. Present you as well, but be present with you and, and change my tone. He says, listen, I, he's taken a harsh tone in this letter so far. We've seen that. But he now says, I'd love to be there with you and change my tone with you. For I have my doubts about you. 
That's a pretty awful place for this, little, this passage to end. Paul started off by saying that I might have labored in vain and now I labor again to bring you to Christ and I have my doubts because they left that love relationship with God for some work. And we are living in a day when people want to present works to the church to move them away from Christ. Let this be, let this study in Galatians be something that roots and grounds us in what is proper and right in Christ, that we would never be taken away to any work that anyone would think that they could somehow add something to the cross because they can't. He bled for you. He died for you. He finished the work. Totelestai, he said, it is finished. And there's nothing anyone can do that can add to it. It is Christ and Christ alone. And let us be zealous, not for Calvary Tucson, not for Calvary Chapel, but be zealous for him. He's the one who saved us. He's the one we're going to when we get up to heaven. He's the one that we have that love relationship with. And may we stay close in that love relationship with him. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to cover this a little bit more lengthy passage in the book of Galatians and see Paul's statement that where they were before they came to Christ and then where they were in Christ and then how they moved away from that and how dangerous it was that they had walked away. And Lord, I pray that we would never allow legalism any foothold in our life at all, but that we would be zealous for you wholeheartedly zealous for you, for you are our Savior. Let us do our good works in such a way that when men see our good works, they glorify our Father who is in heaven. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.